Tuesday on the Rural Radio Network on its way to you here for a Tuesday. And uh, once again, I look at Joe Gangwish over here, the head guy in the Ag Department. And once again, you have spread your people all over the globe. <laughs> we got people everywhere. Right. Or at least almost everywhere. Jesse's at Soybean Management Field Days. That gets underway statewide today. They are in North Platte at the University Research Station there. They'll be in Ord tomorrow. Auburn on Thursday to Kama on Friday. So uh, separate members of the farm team. Shaley's there Wednesday. Bryce, new addition to the farm team, taking the Auburn spot. Bryce or uh, Chad will be at Tecama. So mm-hmm. busy day or busy week. Or uh, soybean management field days. I came to Tacoma. I go to Goner. <laughs> there you go. That's the proper way to put it. <laughs> I got an interesting story. I'm not going to talk about it in uh, Ag News at 12:13, but I had it on earlier, guys. You might appreciate it. Uh, if you'd like a new job, it sounds like they need uh, hog massagers what, what, what? in what? China. Hog massagers. There were. Some quarantined hogs that came over from the U.S. who were breeding hogs that went over to China. They were quarantined. So while they were quarantined, they took care of all their feed, obviously, medical needs, and they even massaged them. So if you need a new job, you can be a hog massager in China. Am I the only one looking for the candid camera around here? Can you do it from a distance? Because I don't want to be right up on near the hog. We'll see if we can get video of that. Before I make a snap judgment on this, what does it pay? I have no idea. I'll find out. <laughs> All right. Let's do <laughs> but, that. but coming up in Ag News, cleanup will uh, begin on the uh, 1.1 million bushel grain bin in Ag Valley Cooperative in Edison. It collapsed Sunday. Thank goodness no one was around because they were going to be working on it the, the next day. So uh, we'll get some reaction on that. Governor Ricketts starting his latest trade mission. That's in Canada today. So we'll talk about that at 1213. Dewey with Jason Ladman, director of Water Street Solutions at 1219. They will discuss building the right culture on the farm. Shaley is with, okay, I'm going to give this a try. Harkamal Walia. He's he's Associate Professor of Agronomy and Horticulture at the University of Nebraska, looking at uh, working with K-State and Arkansas State Universities to look at the effects of high nighttime temperatures on wheat and rice. So that'll be our Newsmaker segment at 1245. Then 117, Brad Lubin is with Jesse Harding from Soybean Management Field Days. Uh, Brad, of course, with UNL Extension discussing crop insurance and farm program payments. Uh, from SMFD in North Platte. So I'll be at 117. Thank you very much. Quickly, Mr. Bennett. Well, we have a number of practices both at the college and the high school level going on right now. And we're going to hear from Nebraska head coach John Cook. He's basically starting over with a new coaching staff and a number of new faces on the team. And, of course, University of Nebraska Kearney volleyball team picked to top the MIA conference preseason volleyball poll after going 17-1 and last year in league play. That is a strong team. Yes, we are looking forward to another great year. Bob Brogan on business. Stocks are moving into positive territory and uh, we're watching that situation. U.S. job openings surged in June. We'll have a report on that and McDonald's is pushing for growth in China. So maybe there's some opportunities there to sell some more Burgers, some or more hire fries. some hog massagers. Maybe right, there we go. Maybe, maybe there's a McRib in your future. There might be. That's all coming up for you today on Midday.
Here he is, legend of the silver screen, radio, <laughs> television, you name it. Paul Perkins here with a real quick check of weather brought to you by Coolman Repair. We do have some clouds starting to move in from the west. Uh, quite a bit of cloud cover over the Panhandle, southwest Nebraska, western Kansas, and northeast Colorado. And it's in association with some light rain that continues to move out of eastern Colorado, but mainly just into western Kansas. Temperatures on the nice cool side currently in the low to mid-70s, an unseasonably cool and unsettled pattern will continue as we remain locked in that northwest pattern, thanks to being on the front side of high pressure to our west and on the back side of low pressure over the Great Lakes. We're right in the middle. More thunderstorms are possible as some disturbances track towards the east and southeast. Those higher chances during the day today going to be over southwest locations where some heavy rain is a possibility. Better chances start to move into central areas later tonight and early tomorrow. Limited redevelopment is possible as we head towards tomorrow night through Thursday night. Friday into Saturday, earlier we were thinking another good chance of some thunderstorms to that forecast, but the recent forecast models have been backing off on the rain chances. We'll have to keep you up to date on that, and we'll know more in the next day or two. Between now and the weekend, though, many locations expected to receive anywhere from 1 to 3 inches, uh, 3 inches on the very high end of that, and a lot of locations potentially seeing up to around an inch of rain. Central Nebraska temperatures in this first week of August, they ranked as the second and third coolest on record, and that trend looks to continue through early next week, and potentially we could see our coolest first two weeks of August on record. Monday, there are hints of a minor pattern change that results in a drier forecast. That long-term forecast, Dirk, now starting to offer some hints as to what we may see for weather on the day of the eclipse. Uh-oh. Yeah, it's long-range, so keep take it with a grain of salt here. In the long term, there is a good likelihood of cooler than normal temperatures for Sunday through August 21st, which won't be bad on that day, uh, the day of the eclipse. But that is way out there to know for sure. But right now, things are trending towards the cooler than normal side. Above normal rainfall is in the outlook for Nebraska and Kansas Sunday through the 21st. The better chances, though, of it being wetter than normal are going to be to our south. Okay. And a lot of times, you know, we always see a lot of sunshine during the middle part of the day. We may have some rain that moves through or starts up in the nighttime, then maybe wraps up in the early morning, and then we always see that sunshine. So. Right. If we do see some rain, hopefully it times out well on that. Well, that would be nice to be able to... Is there a high-low on that? <laughs> uh, do not hold this to that. <laughs> right. Weather factors the market watchers aren't considering include another round of cool and dry conditions for the Midwest and promising rain chances for the southern plains. Rain is very likely in much of the central and southern plains through the weekend. Less than an inch, though, expected in the drought-stricken areas of the northern plains. Heavy rain is forecast from the central Gulf Coast to China's dry but cool conditions in much of the Midwest this next week to 10 days will help with filling corn and soybeans. The exception, though, is Iowa, where topsoil moisture right now ranked 56% very short to short, and no improvement is seen in the forecast. Moderate to heavy rain in the Southern Plains this week, offering some additional benefit to developing crops. For the Northern Plains, the cool temperatures easing on that crop stress, but the rainfall remains limited. Extension production loss for spring wheat already occurred. Now corn in line for drought damage. There is light rain in the forecast for the Canadian prairies. The July heat and drought, though, already lowered production estimates for corn and wheat. Hot and dry conditions return in the 6 to 10 day 
for the Canadian prairies to increase their crop stress. All right, so we are looking at maybe slightly less precipitation than we originally thought going in, but I'll tell you what, it's been quite a nice run. Yeah, exactly, and hopefully a lot of the have-nots can maybe cash in on some rain chances for tonight since those rain chances are somewhat backing off on the potential of that for Friday into Saturday. All right. Our ag weather brought to you this hour by Coolman Repair and when you need weather anytime. KRVN.com. Nebraska Trade Mission to Canada. Let's look at ag news here on the Roll Radio Network. I'm Joe Gangwish. Well, this morning, Governor Pete Ricketts kicking off his first trade mission to Canada, leading a Nebraska trade team on the state's first official mission to that country. Uh, during the five-day mission, delegates will meet with government, ag, and manufacturing officials in Toronto and Ottawa. The governor's leading the delegation along with Nebraska Department of Agriculture Director Greg Ibaugh and Nebraska Department of Economic Development Director Courtney Detlinger. Representing the ag community are Mark McCarg of Nebraska Farm Bureau, Eric Campbell, Nebraska Corn Growers, and the Nebraska Corn Board, and also Galen Frenzen with the Nebraska Cattlemen Association. The governor's office, NDA, DED, and Canadian officials developed the itinerary for the trade mission, which includes a U.S. consulate briefing and meetings with the Ontario Ministry of International Trade, as well as the Ontario Ministry of Agriculture, Food, and Rural Affairs. And we'll have coverage for you here, right? Uh, on the Rural Radio Network. Well, the associate professor from the University of Nebraska-Lincoln leading the way on a project that could impact wheat and rice yields. Let's get an update from Shaley Peters. Parkamal Walya, UNL associate professor of agronomy and horticulture, has received a $5.78 million grant from the National Science Foundation to look at heat tolerance in these crops. Walya talks about the timeline of the project and what he hopes it might lead to. Our goal is to complete the project objectives in four years of course you know given the you know the scale of investment that the national science foundation has uh, you know provided us uh, you know the impact would last i would think at least a decade and surely if you know if we do find and discover something really, really interesting with some rice or and or wheat lines that make them more resilient to heat stress uh, clearly, you know, we w- uh, plan to work with industry partners and also, you know, with other academic partners to explore this in crops such as corn, which is, you know, very important for the, uh, the, uh, the, the Nebraska economy. Kansas State and Arkansas State Universities will be collaborating with UNL on this study. For the Rural Radio Network, I'm Shaylee Peters. Cleanup gets started this week at Ag Valley Cooperative's biggest grain bin at their Edison location. The nearly 1.1 billion bushel bin collapsed late Sunday evening. Ag Valley officials say no one was injured. They say an employee checked the bin about 8.30 p.m. Sunday, finding no issues. And a half hour later, a passerby noticed the damage. Ag Valley interim manager Jeff Cradle he talks about the cleanup efforts. As you can imagine, we you know we got insurance company um, working with us and, and you know some engineers on that. And so, like I said, we're still pretty early trying to figure out exactly how to go about doing that. Um, we do have a couple crews um, with some big grain vacs that will be coming in um, to to start that process. And Cradle says they were extremely fortunate it happened when it did because they would have had many workers around the bin yesterday as they were planning to unload it. Yeah, we were going to start yesterday morning um, emptying it, and so you know. It, it, like I said, it happened on Sunday night, so if it would have happened 12 hours later, we would have had a lot more issues to deal with. But, um, but yeah, so we're, we're um, grateful that it happened when it did. Officials say this will cause 
some issues at harvest time, but Ag Valley hopes to have another bin in place by the end of this year's harvest and will do whatever they can to accommodate growers coming up at harvest time. Cradle told us they'll begin the gradual cleanup this week, and a couple of crews with those larger grain vacs will start that process of cleaning up. U.S. Senator John Boozman of Arkansas joined Senators John Hoven and Luther Strange to introduce the Capital for Farmers and Ranchers Act to increase the maximum loan amount that individual farmers or ranchers can receive under FSA's direct and guaranteed loan programs. This is the Rural Radio Network. On our program today, we talk with Jason Ladman, director with Water Street Solutions, about building the right culture on the farm. Jason, why can this be a challenge at times? Well, you know, when it comes to managing farm employees, there can be some frustrations, and we've talked about that before. And it's understandable because every human being, including ourselves, is a complex and unique person. And not to mention, communication in itself is is challenging. And the challenges are definitely there on the farm, but there are always ways to shape the working environment on your farm to help achieve the results you want for your operation. And that starts with a commitment to intentionally creating and directing the culture that you want on your farm specifically. And every farm operation, and and every business for that matter, has a unique culture or environment that develops. Now, there are two choices when it comes to how culture is created on the farm. And the first is just to let it unfold however it will. And I don't recommend that. But the second is to work to set certain standards, such as how we behave, how we speak to each other, even how we interview a potential employee, how we solve problems, and how we educate ourselves to learn new things. Because when you look at the big picture, the goal is to foster the right environment to achieve the goals that you've set forth on your farm. Jason, how can we create that right environment? Chances are that if you choose to just let things unfold as they will, you aren't going to like the results very much, and I've seen that firsthand. When a farm's culture is left up to chance, it can become just about anything. And and quite frankly, it never magically becomes what you might have in mind or what you want it to be. On farms like that, people problems usually exist about everywhere, and they seem to be consistent and nonstop. And often, it's the type of thing that the farm leader ends up having to deal with, which is just one more thing that takes their time away from doing the work that's critical to the farm's success. So taking action to set certain standards is a much more attractive option. But I'm going to tell you up front, it does take more work and intentionality, which is where most operations fail to launch. So if you truly want to develop an effective work environment on your farm, you're going to need to be the creator and keeper of the farm's culture at all times. That means as the farm leader, you must determine what is important to you personally, professionally, in every part of your business. What else do we need to think about? Well, the first step is considering what your farm's culture is like right now and what you want it to be like and analyzing that gap. And some questions to ask yourself around that are, How well do the people in my operation work as a team? And where do people tend to hit roadblocks when they work with each other? How do people treat each other? And does communication flow well when they talk to each other? And when you ask yourself those questions, think about the type of work that's done on your farm. So what sorts of attitudes and behaviors must employees have for the work that they're going to be doing in order for it to go well and smoothly? And what sorts of values would all employees ideally hold because the owners and maybe any other key leaders in the operation really should sit down at the end of the day to discuss what values should guide and direct their particular operation. They need to think about what they value most as well as what's necessary for the farm to run smoothly. And what values should guide the way we work together on the farm? 
because the farm's core values ultimately set the tone for the culture that you're looking to create. Also consider the processes and practices that you're going to put in place because when it comes to hiring, coaching, and even firing employees, culture and the cultural fit is a big deal. And if you'd like to discuss more about this and about building the right type of culture for your farm and to get the results you want, give us a call here at Water Street. We'd love to talk with you more about it. You can do that by going to waterstreet.org or call 866-249-2528. You're listening to Midday on the Rural Radio Network, and it's time to check sports with Brandon Bennis. Good afternoon, Dirk. The University of Nebraska Lincoln volleyball team begins practice this week. Head coach John Cook is basically starting over with a new coaching staff and a number of new faces on the team. He hopes by the end of the season the Huskers are playing well. So we want to try to be good early. By the time we get to the Big Ten, we've got to become a great team because the Big Ten's going to challenge us. And then by the time we get to the end of the season and the NCAA tournament, we want to try to be unstoppable. And I really believe we can do that. The Huskers will hold their annual red-white scrimmage on August 19th and then start the season in Florida against Oregon August 25th. The University of Nebraska Kearney has been picked atop the MIAA preseason volleyball polls after going 17-1 last year in league play and 35-2 overall last year. The Lopers, who won the MIAA regular season and postseason tournament, received 10 of the possible 12 first-place votes from the coaches. Central Oklahoma, who was third in the league last season with a 15-3 and record, was picked second, receiving one first-place vote this year as they come off an overall 30-4 and 2016 campaign. Washburn, who was 16-2 and in second place in the MIAA last year, was picked third, just four points behind Central Oklahoma. The NAIA preseason coaches' top 25 poll has been announced. St. Francis of Indiana is ranked number one, Baker University of Kansas is second, while Morningside is fourth nationally. Doan is ranked 11th to start the year, while fellow GPAC rival Dakota Wesleyan is 17th. Kansas Wesleyan, who opens up the season against Concordia, is ranked 20th. Trevor Simeon hasn't yet won the Denver Broncos starting quarterback job, but he has earned the starting nod over Paxton Lynch in Denver's preseason opener at Chicago. Head coach Vance Joseph announced after Monday's indoor practice that Simeon will get first crack against the Bears on Thursday night, while Lynch will start Denver's second game. And in baseball, the Los Angeles Dodgers' amazing summer continues. L.A. has won four straight, 13 of the last 14, and is 24-3 and since July 4th. They lead the majors with an overall record of 79-32. and They are just the fourth big league team to win 43 or more games over a 50-game stretch, the first since the 1912 New York baseball giants, according to the Elias Sports Bureau. The others were the 1906 Chicago Cubs and the 1884 St. Louis Maroons of the Union Association. The Dodgers take on Arizona tonight. Barry Bonds says if he had played just one more season, he could have reached 800 home runs or at least come very close. Bonds was at AT AT&T Park on Monday night, marking the 10th anniversary of breaking baseball's all-time home run mark. The San Francisco ballpark is where Bonds hit number 756 to pass Hank Aaron's record. Bonds, who is 53 and works for the Giants, says it, quote, stung, end quote, to walk away from a dedicated 22-year career with little notice immediately after a record-setting 2007 season. Bonds finished his career with 762 home runs. That's a look at sports. Stay tuned. More of Midday is just ahead. You're listening to the Rule Radio Network. A 20% chance of showers and thunderstorms today after 1 p.m., otherwise mostly cloudy with a high near 77. East winds at up to 10 miles per hour, becoming south this afternoon. 
A 60% chance of showers and thunderstorms likely tonight, mainly after 1 a.m. Mostly cloudy with a low near 61. South winds at 10 miles per hour. And tomorrow, a 50% chance of showers and thunderstorms. Mostly cloudy skies with a high near 76. From the KRVN News Center, I'm Annie Brickner. Authorities have released the name of an Omaha man whose body was recovered from a lake near Fremont in eastern Nebraska. The Dodge County Sheriff's Office identified the man yesterday as 45-year-old Eugene Bayless. His body was recovered around 9.20 p.m. Sunday from Lake Victory. Sheriff Steve Hespin says he fell off a personal watercraft earlier Sunday while moving it from a campsite to a docking location. An attorney for Nebraska landowners who opposed the Keystone XL pipeline is posing tough questions to the pipeline's developer before a state commission that will decide whether or not to approve it. The hearing that started yesterday is the last major regulatory hurdle pipeline developer TransCanada faces in its nine-year quest to complete the $8 billion pipeline. Eight nearly new kidney dialysis clinics are mostly unused because the state is more than two years behind inspecting and certifying for the clinics. And another four clinics are waiting to expand because they are waiting for state inspections. Federal funding for inspections was reduced in recent years and Kansas has not made up the difference. That's caused turnover in the health facility inspection force. The backlog for new dialysis centers are by federal law a lower priority and inspections of other types of facilities and existing dialysis centers with problems. The Federal Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services contracts with state health departments to do inspections. Without inspections, dialysis centers can't bill Medicare, which covers 85% of Americans in kidney failure. The Kansas Bureau of Investigation is investigating after a Junction City officer fatally shot a man. Police spokeswoman says the shooting occurred early Tuesday when officers were called to make a welfare check on the west side of Junction City. One man was killed. No officers were injured. Further information was not immediately available. Vice President Mike Pence has been a loyal messenger for President Donald Trump, but he also has begun carving out his own political identity. The Republican vice president has raised money for his political committee, headlined Republican events in states like Iowa and Ohio, and traveled overseas. But as Trump's approval ratings hover near historic lows, Pence is bound by a delicate political reality. His fate is likely tied to Trump's. Safety experts say millions of lives will be at risk now that U.S. officials have dropped plans to require that truck drivers and train engineers be screened for sleep apnea. Officials say testing should be left up to the railroads and trucking companies. One railroad that does test, Metro North in the New York City suburbs, found that 11.6% of its engineers have sleep apnea. We want your news videos and photos. Tip us under the news tab at krvn.com. From the News Center, I'm Annie Brickner. Parkamal Walya, Associate Professor of Agronomy and Horticulture at the University of Nebraska-Lincoln, has been awarded $5.78 million from the National Foundation grant to explore the effects of high nighttime temperatures on wheat and rice. I'm Shaylee Peters on the Rural Radio Network, and Harkamal is here to visit with us today about that. Harkamal, go into a little bit of what you're looking forward to with this study. Oh, yeah. Thank you for this uh, phone call. And I, we're very excited as a team for starting this project. I think it's very important and, and often goes unnoticed uh, is the fact that the higher nighttime temperatures could just be as damaging or more damaging to grain yield and quality. It's been uh, shown in rice in a large global study that increased nighttime temperatures can affect uh, the quality of grain, the milling quality, and also the yield. 
but the, the genetic basis of it has not been explored at all. And some evidence also exists for wheat that this is the case. And so our goal of a project is to discover the, the genes and understand the physiology of what is going on uh, with these grains when they're developing under high, higher nighttime temperature. Uh, so, so we are teaming up with uh, a group of scientists uh, at University of Nebraska at Lincoln uh, and also with colleagues at Kansas State University as well as colleagues uh, at Arkansas State University. Give us some more detail on what exactly you will be diving into with this study. Okay. So the strategy that we want to take is to use a lot of the DNA sequencing resources that have been generated in the past you know, decade or even more than a decade for rice and wheat, uh, where we know s- small differences in DNA sequences for a large set of uh, wheat and rice varieties. So our idea is basically to take that entire set and grow them under greenhouse conditions, and you know so that's several hundred different types of rice and several hundred different types of wheat, and grow them under higher nighttime temperature during grain development, and use state-of-the-art imaging technology where we don't have to destroy the seed every day, every day after it has been experienced, but generally use imaging technology that we have at the Nebraska Innovation Campus to capture changes in grain development in response to high night temperature on a daily basis. So every night they experience a high temperature. During the day, they go through this automated uh, imaging system, and uh, we collect data without destroying the plant. So in theory, what could have actually taken thousands and thousands of plants could done with, with a, you know, two or 3,000 plants now. So just because we're not destroying them, we can reuse them for collecting data the next day and the next day throughout the one, one-and-a-half-month window of grain development. So Nebraska researchers would use genetic analysis and image processing and image capture and image processing to, to gain what we in science call a phenotype, which is something that you can observe. And then we will link that to the, the genetic basis, which would be the changes in DNA sequence, the resources that we already have in public domain from you know, federally funded research, uh, and try to connect those to uh, l- make a linkage between what DNA sequence or what gene could be important for a variety to actually not lose that much yield or not have a significant drop in quality index. So, so we're trying to link that. So once we discover those, we say, okay, you know, this is great in a, green, in a very highly controlled greenhouse condition because we need that for this, the sensitivity that we are looking for to identify small changes. Uh, then we pass that information and the material on to our colleagues in Kansas State, you know, which is the largest winter wheat producer, uh, or about basically the largest wheat producer in the country. Uh, and they will develop special infrastructure where, you know, in, in the field where, uh, you know, a tent would kind of cover a large part of the plot where these plants are growing, and then we, they can heat them up, you know, overnight at four or five degrees higher than the ambient temperature. And then the tent covers would, you know, be withdrawn every day. So that way they can start to see if what we discovered in the field can be now detected through drones and you know other imaging technologies uh, at, in the field conditions. And a similar um, uh, parallel experiment for rice would be done in uh, in uh, in Arkansas, 
uh, in rice paddy conditions where the rice again would experience uh, this higher nighttime temperature and then, you know, imaging and phenotyping. And then we, you know, collect all this data, massive amounts of data across scales that go from, you know, greenhouse to field conditions. Uh, and then we try to put it together and say, what genotypes or what, you know, by genotypes I mean, you know, what genetic makeup of a given variety could really bring heat tolerance to these crops. And then we try to understand how, you know, how this is working at a full plant physiology level. And then we also look at the what's happening inside the cells of these developing grains. So that's the general idea to be able to link this. And more importantly, we, you know, we are also uh, committed to training and educating our public and students and scientists at all levels. So we have, you know, efforts that would go out into uh, across Nebraska, Kansas, and Arkansas uh, into high schools. And then we would also work with undergraduate students in our respective universities, teaching them, you know, methods and technologies that are becoming increasingly more sophisticated uh, in, for the field and the greenhouse. And then also working with the young, you know, early career uh, faculty member and trying to develop skill sets though, so that these three states can be more competitive in, you know, in, in the research that they will do uh, in this area for the next you know, decade or two. All right. Thanks so much. Harkamal Walia, Associate Professor of Agronomy and Horticulture, talking about the study they have been granted money for to look at high nighttime temperatures on wheat and rice and where they're hoping to go from there. I'm Shaley Peters, and you're listening to the Rural Radio Network. Now let's talk about the livestock futures closing with Joe Teal, Great Plains Commodities. Joe? Another one of those days. Uh, cattle uh, finishing lower. Tried to rally several times, but uh, were thwarted each time they uh, moved higher. Cutouts were higher at noon, but that wasn't enough uh, as uh, the selling continued uh, throughout the day. We're seeing uh, the open interest in, uh, in the live cattle and the feeders uh, decline here over the last several weeks and uh, so we've definitely got a liquidation going on at this point uh, um, there uh, obviously it must be some fear that uh, uh, we're going to uh, see lower prices uh, because of uh, the increasing supply so that has been in the uh, forefront and uh, it was evident uh, once again we got to follow through today no triple digit losses but uh, still pressure throughout the day. Over in the hogs, we're going to finish mixed. The uh, Mixed to mostly higher. Uh, the October, the only one uh, out of the first several months that was uh, lower. Uh, and I think that uh, was uh, some spreading going on, uh, getting out of the August contract and uh, selling uh, uh, the October. Uh, cash, eh, steady, a little bit lower again. Cutouts, uh, higher uh, last night uh, and uh, uh, steadied a little bit better uh, today at noon. Uh, so, uh, or uh, I'm sorry, steadied a little bit lower at noon. But that kind of took the wind out of the sails for the hogs, but uh, did manage to close higher. Thanks, Joe. Joe Teal at Great Plains Commodities. 
Kicking off today at North Platte is the first day of the Soybean Management Field Days. For the Rural Radio Network, I'm Jesse Harding. With me is Brad Lubin. He is a policy specialist with UNL Extension. One of the topics of conversation you're going to be discussing are the farm program payments and what some producers may or may not be doing, considerations for the future. So why don't we first start out and talk about the current status of these things. Right. We've had, we know we've had good farm program payments, uh, substantial payments on the 14 crop and the 15 crop that were paid in 2015 and 2016, respectively. We know we're still going to see some payments this year on last year's crop. But we also have to acknowledge that, particularly for those producers that enrolled in the ARC program, which was overwhelming in the in Nebraska, uh, that pay, that support really disappears over the next two years. And so uh, it's helped us manage some of this downfall in the markets, but it's running out and it'll be tough and a challenge for producers to manage through the next couple years. Obviously the economy is currently struggling a little bit. It's already making it difficult for producers. So when it comes to those management and of those payments, what are some of the things that they should be mindful of and looking as they are making these decisions? Right. Well, if we think about the the current program, it has helped us with the downfall in, in prices. Uh, but it, as a moving average safety net, it really sort of forces us to transition and, and adjust to the new market. So hopefully we've had that time and we can make those adjustments to production costs or to uh, our marketing decisions, our risk management decisions in general. We also have to look ahead and know that, you know, there's another farm bill coming, uh, almost always is, and, and this one's due in 2018. Uh, we'll have potential uh, reforms to existing programs, but we'll almost certainly have a new decision that producers have to think about as well. When it comes to the 2018 Farm Bill, there's already talk around crop insurance and the different programs. What are some of the things that are being discussed right now? Right. You know, we we look at, uh, for the last couple Farm Bills, we've really heard producers say that crop insurance is most important. It is the biggest chunk of the safety net right now in terms of federal support. And the general message has been to essentially do no harm, keep crop insurance solid and, and functioning. That hasn't stopped some interest groups from proposing and some lawmakers from proposing cuts to crop insurance uh, because it is the number one bar- budget item uh, So in the safety net. So, so we'll see some fight at the edges, but one might expect that we'll see crop insurance uh, maintained largely in, in, in whole. Uh, on the commodity program, while there's a lot of discussion about this particular element of ARC and the, and the yield history and the calculations or the reference rates in PLC, it's very likely that we end up with basically the same ARC and PLC program in place, uh, but very likely a new decision in 2019. So, uh, so something producers have to get ready for. If we're going to assume things stay basically the same moving forward, when we talk about those new decisions, what might that look like for producers? Yeah. You know, if we look at Nebraska producers overwhelmingly signed up for ARC when they were in corn and soybean base. Uh, Wheat and grain sorghum base were much more mixed between ARC and PLC. Now with where we've fallen with prices, we're at levels where PLC probably looks like the winner for certainly for wheat and grain sorghum and also for corn. Soybeans are still fluctuating in that price range of a dollar or so above the reference rate of 840. And in that range, that decision's a little more of a toss-up between which safety net might provide more support. But we could see an awful lot of uh, uh, new decisions and changes in, in program sign-up given the current outlook. We've been talking with Brad Lubin. He is a policy specialist with UNL Extension. He is here at the Soybean Management Field Day's first day kicking off in North Platte. For the Rural Radio Network, I'm Jesse Harding. 
Dewey Nelson on the Rural Radio Network. Well, we had a little bit of a retracement in that wheat trade today, at least for winter wheat futures. Kind of pulled down the corn, but soybeans remained higher. Let's visit with John Payne, Senior Marketing Analyst with Daniel Zag Marketing in Chicago and publisher of the newsletter, This Week in Grain. So let's start with grains and wheat in particular. Yeah, just a, a, another kind of down day. You know, any up move is just being sold heavily in the wheat complex. You think at some point the spring wheat story would come back into vogue. Uh, a couple of the spreads we follow on the spring wheat side are starting to perk up a little bit, and I thought maybe we'd get a little love into the close, but uh, quite the opposite, more selling Kansas City wheat down six again, and really feels like maybe we're going to run down and, and uh, stick our head below 450 for the short period um, once the harvest wraps up uh, globally uh, for the winter wheat crop in the northern hemisphere. I think we, we will start to trade higher again, but right now it's just about supply, trying to find a home, and there's a lot of it. And look at Kansas City versus Minneapolis wheat, and that basis continues to widen. Is that a concern? 250's kind of been the level we've seen, and now we're we're kind of pushing that three dollars, three three and some change. Now it's I I, I, I tell you what, do it's it, the wheat complex is a very difficult mystery right now, especially when you throw in the fact that the dollar's been weaker. You know, is is that what's got prices up fifty cents from a year ago? Right now, or is it really the the tight story up in uh, up in the uh, spring wheat country? I, I I gotta think it's a little bit of a both mix. But if that spring wheat story starts to grind again, I really think we could see the the board shuffle higher. But I, I, you know, the time is probably more the end of August rather than this period of time. I think corn as well. Um, whether you're trading corn or wheat, I think, like I said, the next two weeks probably are a little softer. But uh, I, I think there's some upside coming. We just need to see the momentum change. Uh, we saw cattle kind of fall apart into their clothes, which could be friendly for grains. We've seen those be very inverted over the last, say, 18 months, uh, and that would be a good sign, I think, for folks who want to see grains go higher. And we've got some spreading going on corn, soybeans, probably before this report. Yeah, and the report, I mean, again, I think corn is probably the more friendly number if you're looking to get long something. Um, you know, there's a nice double bottom on the charts out there in December. You know, 375 kind of feels like a, a low that should hold here shorter term. If, if not there, maybe a dime below there. Can't imagine we're seeing a rush of producers to sell new crop corn at that price. I certainly understand the old crop story. If you really look back at the years where we've we've had big supply coming coming into the end of the growing season, uh, you've seen the bottom come in. When the opposite, when 2011, 2012, uh, those years marked the high of, of the price of the growing season into the end of the year. So I look for some turn here. It's going to take a little time. Thanks, John. John Payne, Daniels Ag Marketing in Chicago.